Good morning. Um, my name is Chris Norton. Uh, you may remember me from last February. I was up here. I gave a uh, catechesis on George MacDonald. Um, today I'm talking about Soren Kierkegaard. He's the one guy on the list who doesn't have saint in front of his name. Um, so you might be wondering how I managed to fit him into the church calendar. And the reason is that the Lutherans have come to our aid. Um, Kierkegaard has a feast day uh, coming up on November 11th. And you can either take that as a hopeful sign that he accomplished what he set out to do um, in terms of critiquing the established church or a sign that he has been subsumed by the very system he attempted to subvert. Um, in some ways, George MacDonald was a more natural subject for me. Um, I know how fiction writers think. I'm one of them myself. Um, I've even gotten to the point where, for the most part, that's how I pay the bills. Um, I write stories for clients, and that provides the fun funds to write the stuff that I want to write, which is usually some kind of satiric magical realism. Um, but when it comes right down to it, I'm not a scholar. I'm just a guy who spends most of his time daydreaming about people who do not exist. So you can see why, with someone like Soren Kierkegaard, the best thing I can do is throw up my hands from the very beginning and admit defeat, because I do not understand the man. And I mean it when I say that. You'll see how much difficulty I've had uh, trying to understand him. Um, less than a year ago, Bob Roberts gave a Kierkegaard talk here. Um, and he's a hard one to follow. And to be honest, I'm not going to try. Um, all I've got going for me is a wacky perspective. And at the very least, I hope it's good for a laugh. Um, a lot of you are familiar with Kierkegaard already. You know about his three life stages, um, how we begin with the aesthetic stage, seeking interesting experiences. And then that's superseded by the ethical and religious stages and it all sounds very ennobling, um, but I wonder what it says about me that I've decided to title this talk Soren Kierkegaard from an Aesthetic Point of View. Um, and let's see, uh, a lot of you who know me thought I was leaving the Wheaton bubble. Um, sorry to disappoint you, but I'm back. Um, <laughs> the truth is I had gotten a lot of grad school rejections and I wasn't happy with my life. So last summer I loaded everything into my car and went, road tripping through the Rockies. Unfortunately, this didn't turn out to be a very good way of working through my existential angst. So one night when I had pitched my tent illegally in a bunch of three-foot snowdrifts, I decided I'd better get up the next morning while the ground was still frozen and get ready to head back east. Long story short, I ended up at a residential study center in Rochester, Minnesota, pounding the books and trying to work through questions that, I'd, that had been driving me crazy since I was a teenager. Um, and uh, there were things like, is it okay that my stories always make me feel far from God before they have any chance to bring me close to, them, to, to him? Do we really need people who write really weird stuff? And if so, why? Christianly speaking, what is the role of irony, satire, and various kinds of unconventional literature? If we're going to be pious, does that mean we have to sound pious? Um, and I really did feel that I needed to answer these things if I was going to live with integrity, and Kierkegaard has been part of that journey. Um, it may seem strange that I would take my problems in aesthetics to a philosopher who positioned the aesthetic as the lowest phase of life. 
But I don't think it has to be. I think of devout Christians who have done innovative literary work, and they're usually people who have had a lot of trouble with the tensions between spirituality and the creative impulse. You can see this in Flannery O'Connor's prayer journal. You can see it in the glorious mess of conflicting voices that is the Brothers Karamazov. It was so difficult for Hopkins that he burned all of his early poetry and became a priest. The difference with Kierkegaard is that he was not quite so good at burning his poetry, so to speak. In the point of view from my work as an author, he writes that one gives up a poetic and philosophical temperament in order to become a Christian. And this is what makes Kierkegaard difficult. He can sit there as the most brilliantly literary philosopher of the modern era and say this kind of thing without batting an eye. Um, young Soren perfectly exemplified the Romantic era esthete. When we read his pseudonymous works, it's not hard to believe that he spent his early years as a social butterfly with a reputation for brilliant wit. It was a front that he kept up even after he became a well-known author. I've never heard of anybody who worked so hard to undermine his own authority. There's a story in The Point of View where he writes, I was so busy when I was reading the proofs of either or that it was impossible to spend the usual time sauntering back and forth on the street. I did not get through the work till late in the evening, and then I hastened to the theater where I remained literally only from five to ten minutes. And why did I do this? Because I feared the big book would create for me too great a reputation, because I knew human nature, especially in Copenhagen, to be seen every night for five minutes by several hundred people sufficed to substantiate the opinion he hasn't the least thing in the world to do. He is a mere idler. I've never heard of such a thing. And he managed to trick pretty much everyone because, among other things, it was his way of disguising a lifelong case of melancholia. The way he describes this is complex, but it tended to be that the diagnosis at the time for people who suffered from depression. As a young man, he wrote in his journal, I have just returned from a party of which I was the life and soul. Witty banter flowed from my lips. Everyone laughed and admired me, but I came away wanting to shoot myself. This is called social anxiety, and it is not your friend. Soren traced his anxiety and depression to a childhood that wasn't. His father, Michael Kierkegaard, was a very harsh older man um, who was haunted by memories of cursing God as a child. And Michael really did think that thereafter his entire family was cursed. For a nor normal child, this would have been bad enough, but Soren was profoundly gifted, and he would have followed ideas to their logical conclusions in a way that in this context could only be extremely disorienting. He was left with a deep division within himself, which he would address especially in The Sickness Unto Death. The self, he writes, is a relation relating itself to itself, um, and basically if something is wrong with that relation, if the self is fundamentally out of proportion and diseased, it is impossible to stand as you are before God. In this context, his entire philosophy is really an attempt to exist before God in some kind of unified, cohesive way. Kierkegaard, as a young man, was not able to do this. I've spent the past couple of months going through either or, the big book, uh, one of his many big books, um, which I'll tell you about later on. But there's a description of a character in there that seems to fit the young Kierkegaard very well. You have wealth, independence, your mind is still vigorous, and you have not yet been made unhappy. Yours is a despair in thought. Your thought has hurried on ahead. You have seen through the vanity of everything, but you have not come any further. 
And in the margin of the book, I wrote, damn, this is me. And in reading Kierkegaard, you will have those moments. Everything in his writings is designed to negate the possibility of disinterested contemplation. Just one second. One way he does this is by being a ridiculously astute observer. Today, he's sometimes called the father of psychology, in fact. And it's because no matter who you are, he knows how you think. You are in his books, whether you like it or not. And so you have this young man who is brilliant and witty and empathetic, and is probably the most talented young writer in Denmark at this point. He publishes his first book when he's 24, and he is profoundly unhappy and has no idea what he's doing with his life because he can de- deconstruct anything you put in front of him. He has no idea how to live, so he writes, the thing is to understand myself, the thing is to find a truth which is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and die. This is, how I no- this is what I now recognize as the most important thing. There's one event Uh, pretty well-known, that seems to have kicked off his full-scale awareness of his inability to exist in a unified way before God. And this was the infamous breaking off of his engagement with Regine Olson. His reasons for breaking off the engagement are somewhat murky. Evidently, they were murky for Regine as well. She seems to have spent the next two months trying to get him to reconsider. It seems to have been an ugly breakup. Um... Because unlike today, it was something that marked you as a fairly bad person. Um, But it must not have been too bad, because when Regine got engaged again, she and her fiancé would get together and read Kierkegaard's writings to each other. Um, Steamy. But Kierkegaard seems to have been convinced, rightly or wrongly, that he had something to do that he would not be able to do if he were married. I don't think he knew yet what it was or that it would involve writing 35 books in the next 10 years. He seems also to have thought he was not capable of being a good husband. He thought he lacked a kind of necessary openness. And some of the secondary sources I've been reading seem to corroborate that he wasn't capable of domestic life. John Caputo writes, had he himself married, begotten children, and become a pastor, which is what he considered at several points, he would likely have driven the whole lot of them, Regine, the children, the whole parish, quite mad. He was a pretty obsessive guy. So instead of getting married, he went to Germany and wrote a book about marriage. And this is the monster. Um, And uh, it's it's actually nothing like a philosophical treatise. I would argue that a better way to think about it would be as a polyphonic novel which is a literary form that Dostoevsky is credited with inventing, in which multiple voices with multiple viewpoints are allowed to exist in tension with one another. Um, Either or is a strange example because it's debatable whether it's a novel in the first place, and this would give the title for inventing it to Kierkegaard rather than Dostoevsky, in fact. Um, But uh, there's really no category for it. Um, The narrator... The narrative framework involves a fictional editor, Victor Aramida, or the triumphant recluse, who discovers two stacks of papers in a desk at a second-hand shop. One stack is a set of essays by a young esthete, simply called A. The other is a series of letters from an older man, uh, Judge Wilhelm, to the esthete. These two stacks become the two parts of the book. 
There's a strategically pl placed parable in the first part that I think is a really good lens through which to see Kierkegaard's pseudonymous writings. Something wonderful happened to me, writes the esthete. I was transported into the seventh heaven. All the gods sat there in assembly. By special grace, I was accorded the favor of a wish. Will you, said Mercury, have youth or beauty or power or a long life or the prettiest girl or any other of the many splendors we have in our chest of knickknacks? So choose, but just one thing. For a moment, I was at a loss. Then I addressed myself to the gods as follows. Esteemed contemporaries, I choose one thing, always to have the laughter on my side. And his wish is granted. Um, when he wrote this, he had recently finished his dissertation on Socratic irony, the way Socrates is able to make the unfounded assumptions of his interlocutors seem ridiculous, because they are. Kierkegaard conceives the idea of becoming a kind of Socrates for Jesus. His arguments never lack for passion, and the satirical elements in the pseudonymous works serve as a kind of ground clearing to prepare us to confront the question, how should I live? While his many pseudonyms are a form of ironic distancing, they never compromise the sincerity of his purpose. Rather, they force us to develop our own relationship to the truth rather than relying on his. We can't be good Kierkegaardians the way we could be good Kantians or good Aristotelians because Kierkegaard's own thoughts are often buried beneath so many layers that we don't really know what it would mean to follow the master, so to speak. Rather than coming from the man behind them, the authority of his writings must come from the texts themselves. This is important because of a key Kierkegaardian concept, which is that truth is subjectivity. You have to be careful about saying something like that in church, but we're all grown-ups here. So truth is subjectivity. What Kierkegaard means is not that truth is whatever you want it to be or that you make a commitment to faith without regard to logic. And there have been professional philosophers among Kierkegaard's opponents who have made this kind of mistake, notably Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer gives Kierkegaard pride of place in his account of the decline and despair of Western civilization in which Kierkegaard is ominously known as the first man below. Um, this makes me want to make a lot of jokes at Schaefer's expense, but I think the, mo the most constructive thing is just to say, I think this is based on a misreading, um, and I think that uh, Bob Roberts, our resident Kierkegaard scholar, would agree with me. Um, whether, whether Western civilization is in decline and despair is above my pay grade at present. Based on what I've read, I don't think Kierkegaard or any of his pseudonyms would say that you can prove the truth of Christianity in the way that perhaps some people would like. But suffice to say that Soren was not exactly the type um, to say that when you become a Christian, you throw your brain away. When you make his famous leap of faith, it's a personal commitment, and it's a passionate one, but you do it for reasons that make rational sense. And if we can trust his account of his own intentions, he was far from thinking that it's a matter of indifference what you commit yourself to. The proper object of this commitment is God. Um, I'll do the best I can explaining this. An objective relationship to an idea or to God or Christianity would be one in which we relate ourselves to that idea in such a way that it does not exert any force on us. It doesn't change us. It's an impersonal and detached way of relating. Kierkegaard thinks there is a falsehood to this kind of relationship. Instead, the way we relate to truth must be in itself truthful. The lines that connect us to truth and to God are living and active, full of personal need and passionate intensity.
Kierkegaard writes, now if the problem is to calculate where there's more truth, whether on the side of the person who objectively uh, or in an impersonal and detached way seeks the true God or on the side of the person who is concerned that he in truth relate himself to God with the infinite passion of need, where's there more truth? Kierkegaard answers with characteristic feeling, there can be no doubt about the answer for anyone who is not totally botched by scholarship and science, he says. So for Kierkegaard, the real truth is in a personal relationship to the truth, who is Christ. Um, the construction of the authorship as a whole reflects this concept of truth. Kierkegaard is pretty much never going to give you a straight treatise, and when he does, the pseudonym is not going to behave himself. Um, and uh, that's why these are some incredibly weird texts, because a book that you can read objectively without relating yourself to it in a personal way um, isn't doing what Kierkegaard wanted his books to do. And preventing that takes some creativity. Um, so let's look at how either or does this. Um, the first part, as you'll remember, is written by the esthete. People of experience maintain that it is very sensible to start from a principle, writes our esthete. I grant them that and start with the principle that all men are boring. Or will, or will someone be boring enough to contradict me on this? Adam was bored, bored alone, then Adam and Eve were bored in union, then Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel were, were bored en famille, then the population increased and the peoples were bored en masse. To the esthete, life is fundamentally boring, so the trick is to manipulate your circumstances and your experience of time so that you can make everything as interesting as possible. There's a collection of sayings in the esthete's writings that contradict each other according to the whims of the moment. There is a scheme for preventing pleasures from losing their potency over time. Earlier on, early on, we find a, quote, ecstatic lecture that is itself titled Either Or. If you marry, you will regret it. If you do not marry, you will also regret it. Laugh at the world's follies, you will regret it. Weep at them, you will also regret it. To the esthete, either or just means it doesn't matter what you choose. Do whatever you like. These are serious choices, but the esthete can only engage with them via irony. It's like a compulsion. Um, there's actually part of part one that is not even written by the esthete himself. This is the famous seducer's diary, which has been published as a separate novel, complete with a foreword by John Updike. What I really want to know is how much was Updike paid for this adventure in missing the point? The seducer's diary only makes sense in context. Within the larger scheme of the book, it showcases the bre breakdown of the aesthetic point of view. In carefully manipulating his fiancée, Johann the seducer has the most interesting time he is able to engineer. But in the end, we're not able to go along with this seduction because Kierkegaard highlights the ways it's morally repulsive to us. There are recurrent interludes of flirtation in which it's made clear that faithfulness to aesthetic principles does not necessitate faithfulness to his fiancée. But it's not just that. My practice, writes the seducer, is in perfect harmony with my theory. And it is. Yet elsewhere he writes, my lovely Cordelia, I am cheating you out of something beautiful, but it cannot be otherwise. After a couple hundred pages of this, we are hopefully nauseated enough to concede that we owe allegiance to something higher than aesthetics. So now we move on to 
part two, which mostly consists of Judge Wilhelm taking the esthete to task in a couple of gigantic letters. As the representative of the, aesthetic, of the ethical life, Judge Wilhelm repeatedly claims that he doesn't have anything like his young friend's quickness of mind. Don't let him fool you, though, because he'll say he's no philosopher and then toss off a really sophisticated critique of Hegel, and you can definitely tell who is actually behind the writing. And he's not without wit, either. Now, unlike you, he writes, I am not under the tragic necessity of having to mount an always unsuccessful campaign against duty. Judge Wilhelm is maybe a little bit impressed with himself, or anyway, he sees himself as being in the right. But we're willing to go along with him because his hundreds of pages of moral criticism have a solidity that the esthetes' writings didn't have. He's happily married, much more grounded as a human being, and to his credit, he doesn't enjoy writing this way to the esthete. He thinks it's his duty as a friend, and he's genuinely concerned. It's the esthete's very lack of solidity that Judge Wilhelm attacks. The esthete's life mirrors the poetry and music that he loves. And keep in mind that this is the Romantic era. Art is dreamy, abstracted, and removed from actual life. It doesn't walk, it floats. And it really is true that pretty much anything Wilhelm and the esthete say about art ends up also being true of the esthete himself. Um, and vice versa. Um, I'll skip a little bit here, but what you need to know is the, that the aesthetic has a lot of problems with time. Um, at this point, though, it's time to ask why Kierkegaard calls this phase of life the aesthetic in the first place. Why not call it something else? For those of us who are seriously involved in the arts, this kind of terminology can be almost personally offensive. Um, most writers and artists I know today would not agree that aesthetics excludes the ethical. Um, it's what gives stories a sense of purpose of really being about something that matters. Um, well, if I'm going to consider this a personal attack from Kierkegaard, there are all kinds of ways I can defend myself. The supposed father of existentialism, psychology, and the polyphonic novel is no match for an unknown daydreamer from Shreveport, Louisiana. Bob Roberts told us in February why we don't really want to call him the father of existentialism, but I know it's something I would want to have on my resume. So this is what this has all been leading up to. This is the point where I go three rounds with Kierkegaard trying to force him to resolve this tension between the aesthetic and the ethical. Round one. The first clue is in the esthete's intro to the seducer's diary, where he talks about how he essentially stole the manuscript. I came across the following sentence. At least a bad conscience can make life interesting. At least a bad conscience can make life interesting. And I realize that this is the esthete's comment on morality. Essentially what he has is a different way of assigning value to experiences, deciding which ones are desirable and undesirable. Anyone who consoles himself about a bad conscience by saying that it's going to make life more interesting has clearly got his priorities out of whack. Don't be that guy. So the aesthetic must just be a scale of priorities that values the interesting over the ethical, correct? There are plenty of artists who value the ethical enough not to steal to make their lives more interesting. Case closed. Not so fast. Kierkegaard seems to associate art and the aesthetic with a number of tendencies, abstraction, non-continuity of time, that have problematic implications for character. It's not just that there's higher, higher value placed on the interesting. Let's try again. Round two. To understand Kierkegaard's concept of the aesthetic, it's necessary to enter into his historical context. When he makes a generalization about the poet, he's talking about a romantic poet specifically. 
This is what makes it necessary for one of Kierkegaard's pseudonyms to write that if you're going to become a true self, the setting is not in the fairyland of the imagination. From one of my secondary sources, endless possibility, dreaminess, indeterminacy is what the romantics are after. And this is really what he's criticizing. However, since we're no longer mired in romanticism, we can get past all that. I don't want to bore you because, let's be real, this next is the stuff of academic papers, but I honestly think that literary modernism did a fairly good job of responding to his critiques. Um, it's more concrete. If anything, there are new ways of dealing with time, stream of consciousness, narration, and so on. Um, and then I realized, actually, there are sections in The Seducer's Diary that read like stream of consciousness narration. Is Kierkegaard the father of that, too? At this point, I'm pretty sure Kierkegaard is the father of everything new that's appeared on the earth since 1835, at least it seems like. Um, moving on, though, does this mean that thanks to the influence of Virginia Woolf and William Faulkner, we're free to go? Well, here we do get a small concession. Kierkegaard says, the more justice is done to time, the richer and fuller the aesthetic ideal becomes. Um, but it's a small concession. At this point, Kierkegaard is going to make the game really difficult. So let's put our, aesthet our aesthete in a time machine, have him come to 2019, put him through the Wheaton College English Department for three or four years, and send him back home. Our esthete gets back to Copenhagen, knocks on George Wilhelm's door, and begins to gush about some George Saunders story. Judge Wilhelm leans back in his chair, polishes his glasses, and finally says, just as poetry and art are in one sense a reconciliation with life, so in another they are at enmity with life because they only reconcile one side of the soul. Okay, so there's the definitive statement, the man cannot be pleased. The esthete just sighs, he looks incredibly tired. Okay, he says, one more time, what about the aesthetic? How can it be represented? Judge Wilhelm says, well, by being lived. All that I've been talking about can be represented aesthetically, not, however, by poetic reproduction, but by one's living it, by realizing it in actual life. Don't you get it? This is how aesthetics transcends itself. Um, in other words, we are God's poema, his workmanship, created to do good works, and our actions are the beautiful thing. I honestly don't know how our esthete is going to respond to this. I don't know how the esthete responds to anything in Judge Wilhelm's letters, because it's not in there. It's easy to see why. On some level, I think we're supposed to see ourselves in the esthete. We're clever, or at least we like to think we are. The arts are important to us. Kierkegaard knew the kind of people who would read his book. So we decide how the esthete responds. And that's the key, because once the esthete receives the letters from Judge Wilhelm, he can't ironically distance himself from the either or anymore. And once he's making these choices intentionally for good or ill, that's the ethical life. The ethical life doesn't mean you're choosing the good. It just means you're consciously choosing to live one way or another. At least that's the ethical stage, according to Kierkegaard, as he's defining it in this book. Either way, you're stuck. So let's see how you make your choice. Well, how does this aesthete respond? Personally, I like the idea that at some point in our lives, aesthetics has to transcend itself. And each, even Judge Wilhelm doesn't think that you actually lose the aesthetic, you end up getting it back. His theory of duty sounds weirdly like fiction writing, of all things. You only realize the universal insofar as you submit to the particular. Kierkegaard thought of himself as a missionary. Um, and I know this book has made a difference for me. Maybe the act of creating a work of art like this can itself be a good work. 
and Judge Wilhelm uh, makes um, arguments about how um, the ethical life is actually superior from an aesthetic point of view. Um, I think that uh, despite all of this, Kierkegaard must have thought that art, the arts and imagination should be allowed to critique our thinking um, because why else would he write The Seducer's Diary? That seems to be what it's there for. Uh, why else would he write gigantic philosophical novels? Um, like any married couple, ethics and aesthetics can be pretty uncomfortable together sometimes. There are problems with art as we know it. That doesn't mean we stop making things. It means we try to make things that solve those problems. So I honestly don't have a super great answer here. Um, it remains a sort of uncomfortable relationship. Um, and that's cause for a certain amount of innovation that needs to take place. Um, one of the reasons I chose to read Either Or was that this was the book that really made Kierkegaard as we know him today. Before this, he was basically a 19th century hipster with a theology degree. Afterward, he came to consider himself a kind of missionary. I picture him in Germany, where he went two weeks after the breakup. In his diary, he tells us, when the bond with Regine broke, my feeling was this, either you plunge into wild dissipation or absolute religiousness. And I picture him going to a lot of lectures and basically trying to figure out his life, writing these 100-plus page letters from Judge Wilhelm to a fictional version of himself. In the point of view, he tells us that when he was writing Either Or, he devoted himself to reading edifying literature at certain times every day, like, like clockwork. This would have surprised his audience because The Seducer's Diary was considered pretty scandalous. And it seems that all of this started to change him. But there's actually another layer to Either Or that I didn't tell you about. Um, it's Kierkegaard. There's always another layer. Um, but it turns out that just as the aesthetic has to transcend itself, the ethical also has to transcend itself. At the very end of the book, Judge Wilhelm forwards the aesthete one more letter. And this one is actually a sermon by a friend of his. The title is The Edifying, in the thought that against God, we are always in the wrong. You see, there's actually something better than always being in the right. The pastor makes the case that it is actually edifying to know that before God, we are never in the right. Because um, when someone wrongs you, you may comfort yourself with the thought that you're in the right. Whatever else may be said, you can pat yourself on the back and we can all be smug together. But imagine if someone very close to you harms you. A very close friend or some of you married folk may think of a spouse. You don't want to think of this person as the kind of person who is going to do wrong to you on purpose. And so at this point, you begin to analyze the situation from multiple angles um, searching for some way in which you may be in the wrong. And this is the way we are toward God or should be toward God because we love him and we can always come to him in repentance knowing that he will never wrong us and always will forgive us. Um, I think it was Martin Luther who said that we should never actually aspire to be anything but sinners before God because there is always more grace. The difficult thing when talking about grace, of course, is if there's always more grace, does that mean that we sin boldly, that grace may abound? And with this way of understanding our relationship with God, the answer is really is no. Think about that close friend or your spouse again. If your relationship with them is such that you would rather be in the wrong, does that lead you to do wrong to them? Of course not. You only feel this way toward them 
that you would rather be in the wrong than have them be in the wrong in the first place because you love them. And so here is where he starts to develop the concept that is actually another life stage and another perspective beyond the ethical. And he's going to write about that at greater length in one of his next books, Fear and Trembling, which is one place to start reading Kierkegaard because it's a lot shorter. If I can go on a brief digression, I started with The Sickness Unto Death, which I recommend if you are a generally confused person. And it has served me really well. Or there's another place where you can start, which I'll get to in a minute. Back to the sermon, it serves its purpose in subverting what Judge Wilhelm has to say, but it's also pretty similar to what are called the edifying discourses, which Kierkegaard published in his own name, alongside all of his pseudonymous work, usually on the same day. Thus he presents us with another either or, and he really thought the edifying discourses were more important. So are you going to choose the pseudonymous work or the edifying discourses? Um, and I have often made the wrong choice. Um, I held out either or to the world with my left hand and the edifying discourses with my right, he tells us. And pretty much everyone was more interested in what was in the left hand. Um, as for me, my spending so much time in either or just goes to show how I remain mired in the aesthetic. And I really think he may have been prepared to say this. He even jokes about how he values the pseudonymous work less. In some ways, it's just there to get you to the point where you're ready for the edifying discourses. Because, as he says, only the truth that edifies is true for you, in the sense that we talked about before. In the preface to the concluding unscientific postscript, one of the pseudonymous texts, he writes, seldom, perhaps, has a literary enterprise been more favored by fortune or had a reception more in accordance with the author's wishes than was the case with my philosophical fragments. Hesitant and reserved, as it is my custom to be, in connection with every form of self-appraisal, I dare nevertheless affirm one thing, and that with confidence, about the fate of the little book. It has created no sensation, absolutely none. Undisturbed and in compliance with his own motto, better well-hung than ill-wed, the well-hung author has been left hanging. The sermon, though, um, at the end of either or, is one of the best explanations of grace I've heard. And with that, I think I'm just about ready to do what I should have been doing in the first place and dive into more of the edifying discourses. In any case, they're not quite as difficult, and I have to admit, my head hurts from either or. So let's not leave him hanging. So anyway, does anyone have any questions? So he, he wrote the discourses, um, they, they came out at the same time as all of the pseudonymous works. Um, and he ends up writing in the point of view for my work as an author that uh, he did that in order to show that he did not um, start out as an aesthetic author and then become a religious author later on. Um, so that he'd be able to show that the whole time his intention was uh, religious. So. What is your leaning here? What direction do you find yourself moving as far as how you understand the tension between the aesthetic and the ethical as 
Um, so, so the question was, uh, how, uh, how do I in understand the tension between the aesthetic and the ethical at this point, and how do I resolve that? Um, I think that, um, like I said, I think that art can serve to critique ethical concepts. I, I definitely don't think we want to give it up. Um, I think that there are um, a lot of uh, things that can end up being problematic or untruthful with um, conventional ways of doing art or doing writing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I, I think there's a certain amount of like innovation that's called for um, to write more, more truthfully, you know, with every generation, so. Oh yeah. Is super Kierkegaardian in some way, um, and he kind of thinks that the one way the aesthetic has a leg up on the ethical is that you you're kind of closer to that final like religious phase because you're at least outside of yourself for other things. Like the one thing the aesthetic, you know, that will, that, excuse me, the one thing the aesthete has over the ethicist is that um, he's not susceptible to pride. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So Mark said the the one thing the esthete has over over the ethical is that he's not susceptible to to pride, um, which I think is yeah. I, I think that's really cool. I I would have liked to um, do a, a much broader uh, talk on on Kierkegaard, but I got so swamped trying to get through this book that it kind of, uh, it kind of took over. Um, so yeah, anyway, I, I want to look into more, that more. I mean, I, I try to. Um, so the uh, the thing is, it's been it's been really uh, cool to see how it, this is. It's an incredibly weird, unusual book. It it uses all kinds of uh, very innovative tactics to um, keep you from being able to just dismiss it. Or just you know read it as a philosophical text and put it away or whatever um, and so in that way um, and it's also very 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 witty and you can see how that's used to a good purpose um, and so in that way it's it's really um, it's really encouraging as someone who doesn't write like Marilyn Robinson or whatever um, that uh, there's another way to do it. So, <laughs> do you have any interesting um, tidbits about his biography? About you know anything in his life that happened to him that would be interesting to share with us? Yeah. So um, there's uh, there's the Corsair affair, 
um, where he ends up um, he ends up challenging this newspaper to uh, publish uh, caricatures and satires against him, um, which is a very strange thing to do, um, but he was a very strange man. And um, one of the really interesting things that, that happens with this is this happens at the same time that um, society in Copenhagen, he says, becomes very ironical. And so he starts inviting them to make fun of him, but he switches um, his main um, output over to um, the edifying work, um, the less ironic stuff, because I guess while society was less ironic, he thought you know, they, they needed um, someone to deconstruct their presuppositions and stuff like that. But then when they became more ironic, he decided they, they need some stability here. Um, so anyway, the Corsair Affair is, is kind of fun. They, they published these, all these um, caricatures of, of, of the way that he stands and stuff. And you can still find them. They're really funny images. Someone else wrote them. <laughs> um, so in practicing Christianity, in some of his other like, more metodic discourses, he talks about the offense of Christianity. Yeah. And I'm curious what, if there's anything you found in the Empire of War that has to do with offensiveness, and how offensiveness is a factor in that process. Yeah. Um, I, it's not as much a factor in this one. I remember um, reading The Sickness Unto Death and him talking about the, um, the absurdity of Christianity um, and the offense because at the center there's, there's this contradiction that um, this particular historical person um, is, is God and is the, the universal. Um, and uh, anyway. Um, I mean, I do think the the way that uh, Judge Wilhelm is talking to the esthete could be considered offensive, but um, but uh, he, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and the the idea that ethics ends up being being superseded, and there's something you know you can you can think oh I I keep on being in the right but that's actually the wrong way to look at it, um, so. <laughs>
Yeah. Um, so I, I had a, uh, and maybe maybe I should have done this, um, but I had a version of the talk where the ending was about that. Um, and um, there's a, uh, do you know a book called Reality Hunger? Um, there, there's this book called Reality Hunger by David Shields that came out in 2010, and it's about how we don't actually come into contact with reality very much, and we need more of it, and how to um, create works of art that do that for people. And uh, there's this part where he he's he's talking he's basically talking to himself um, as he's making a film or something, and he says confess things to the camera, say, um, say the things that you don't want anyone to know about you, say the things that you want to forget yourself. Um, and maybe that way there will be a little bit of truth. Um, so, uh, and uh, anyway, so, and I, I think that being, um, truthful about our connection to um, to the truth is a very Kierkegaardian concept. Um, so, you know, maybe not trying to sugarcoat Christian witness, you know, not trying to make it into some kind of like marketing um, exercise, um, but being really honest that it's really difficult to become and remain a Christian. Um, so does that answer your, your question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jim. Does what you just said kind of summarize that final religious phase that he was talking about, or could you talk about that religious phase? Um, the religious phase, um, it's in, in this book, it's only brought in at the very end, kind of turns the, turns the tables on Judge Wilhelm. Um, and then you're, you're, you're left continuing to question, like, how, how do I live? Um, I, uh, I mean, I think, like, honesty about our relationship to the truth is, is a good thing in the religious phase. I don't, I don't know, um, I, I don't know how it's, how exactly it's related to the religious phase specifically. Um, except that he he ends up thinking of himself as a uh, as a uh, witness for God in his his own um, religious phase. So it's certainly that that kind of honesty is certainly um, something that um, he sees as, as necessary to the way that he lives the the religious life. Yeah. So I don't know that that's. That's the best I can say right now. Anyway, I don't know how much more time we have. Um.